perfection. From beginning to end, he is the same God, right? So if you want to know more about the immutability of God, Kevin DeYoung has a really great sermon from T4G in April, but that's a side note in a different sermon. But anyway, so moving forward. So let's, I'm sure all of you are wondering, oh Lord, what is this guy going to talk about? So let's go find out. Let's go to his word. So Luke 19, we're going to pick it up in 37, 1937. So we're going to pick it up where uh, towards the end of what Gabe preached on last week. So we can see the bridge over to where we are this week. So everybody with me? Luke 19, 37. Also, there's Bibles on the edge of the uh, rows here. Uh, so if you don't have one, I would love for you to open up the Word and see for yourself. And if you don't have one at home, take it with you. It's our gift from us to you. Luke 19, 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, again, framework, this is Jesus' triumphal entry heading towards Jerusalem for everybody to understand. So as he was drawing near, already, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that, he had, that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, this is very important, you need to Let's pay attention to this one. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. More on that in a minute. Let's keep going. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, saw Jerusalem, he wept. He wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So I don't know about you, the first time I started reading through this, when I learned that this is what I'll be preaching on, I read it the first time and I was like, oh Lord, what does this mean? Um, so I'm sure, and if, you, if all of you just read it and got exactly what, you know, what it says, then y'all are Bible wizards and I need to learn, like, it's awesome. I wrestled with this for like a week. It's very heavy, um, but it's very important to our understanding of who God is. We see here a holistic view of God, right? We can't just focus on God as love and mercy and, and hold on to the safe parts of God, right? Here we're seeing God's judgment being cast on, Israel, on Jerusalem, on Israel, and giving a very clear picture of what is about to happen. So, like as I said, we're focusing on the previous text first before we get into ours. So the last verse, so look at verse 40. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What does that mean? The very stones will cry out. So there's a parallel verse in the uh, minor prophet book of, I can't say the name, Habakkuk. I don't know if that's right at all, but um, Habakkuk, right? So Habakkuk, we'll keep saying that. We're going to call him Harry. That's what uh, Ricky suggested. So that'll make it a lot easier. But anyway, so Habakkuk, right? There's this uh, nation called the Chaldeans. I think that's how you say it. They built, there's very wealthy. They had a very wealthy city, very wealthy nation. They built their wealth on destroying other nations and other cities and other peoples, right? They just destroyed, slaughtered, bloodshed everywhere, iniquity everywhere, and stole their wealth, built up their cities with these stones and this elaborate, uh, made this elaborate place to live. And so Habakkuk is like crying out to God, like, God, what are you doing? Like, 
You don't see what they're doing? Like they're, they're destroying all these people. They're building all this up. And so God casts judgment on them. This is what he says. Habakkuk, however you say that. Chapter 2, we're going to read verse 11 and 12. I think it should be on the screen. For the stone will cry out from the wall and, from, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. So what does that mean? So here in Habakkuk, the stones are crying out. What does that mean? The stones are, are a visual representation of the bloodshed and the sin and the destruction and the disobedience of God that it was built upon. Think of it as, you, you know, you probably heard of the term blood diamonds, right? So when you hold blood, like blood diamonds, right? They're diamonds, there's no blood on them, but they represent the bloodshed that was created to get them there. Does that make sense? That is essentially what's happening here with these stones that Habakkuk and now Jesus is using it in the same way here. He's casting judgment. He's about to cast judgment on Israel and foretell what is to occur. So we go back to our text, starting in verse 41. We'll read it again. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Wept, underline that. He wept. He saw the city, visually saw it, and then he wept. And then we see more. So would that... Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will, leave, they will not leave one stone upon you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So I want you to focus on another thing. You can think of that phrase that we just read about the stones wept, right? Stones cry out, excuse me. Think of that as an umbrella. When you look at your Bible, it's like an umbrella overshadowing the next three verses. The umbrella is an umbrella of judgment. Okay, so there's a judgment coming. Jesus gives us a clear picture of that. So there's an umbrella, right? Under that umbrella, you have mercy and his love and you have his wrath. There's, there's two outcomes to God's judgment, mercy and wrath. And we're about to just start breaking that down. We'll focus first on Jesus' tone. He wept. This isn't like the word used here for wept is the strongest word you can use in Greek. So it doesn't mean like, oh, Jesus shed a tear. You know, he just, he got a little puffy or something. No, no, no. He's like literally sobbing over this. Sobbing. Like he's in agony right now. And so, and so a lot of us would think like if we have this happy-go-lucky view of God, this weak, just love kind of God, then what we would probably think here is, okay, we see, he, he see that he wept, right? So we'd probably think, well, surely to goodness, like, he doesn't really mean, like, you know, it's gonna, they're going to get destroyed and the children are going to get separated, right? Like, won't they just, won't God just give them a pass? Like, isn't there some kind of back door? Like, no, I don't, there's not one here. There's not one there either. There's no back door. Like, God loves his people. We see this. He wept. He loves them. But there's no back door. He, let's just keep moving. So, the terms of peace, right? Would that you? He's saying, Israel, if only you knew the terms of peace. If only you knew the things that make for peace. If I wonder, what in the world does that mean? The gospel. Jesus spent three years. He's a week away from his death. He spent three years proclaiming his name his father's name, lifting up. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is coming, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. Israel rejected it. 
They did not believe. They are blind. Their sin and their disobedience has blinded them. They cannot see it. But he's still, he spent three years proclaiming this. He's given them the terms of peace. He's showing his love because he came to save us, right? He came to make a way for us to have peace with God. The terms of peace, Israel most likely translated that to mean peace like political peace, racial peace, uh, you know, peace of Rome, Jesus is just gonna go destroy them. Uh, but that's not the case, right? The kingdom of heaven is not the kingdom here, it's kingdom of heaven, right? Kingdom of God, it's above us. So, we see that he wept, right? That is a natural response. If you love somebody, now take for a second, so let's, let's bring this to us and imagine. So imagine, think of your family. Think of your family, think of your close friends, think of people that you know. Can you name somebody that does not have a saving relationship with Christ? If you can, and I'm sure all of us can, think of that person's name in their face. So Jesus, right, is coming into the city, he sees the city, he sees the representation of sin, of disobedience, and all these things, but he's, he still knows these people, he still loves them, right? He, know, he, he, he can visualize everybody in there, because he's God, but he also is Jesus, who was lived there for 33 years. So there's somebody in there that he knows that he's met, but yet they're apart from him. They've rejected the gospel, they've rejected Jesus. So yes, Jesus wept, Jesus loves them, Absolutely. But that doesn't negate their sin. That doesn't negate that they have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that they are forever cut off from Christ up, or up, forever cut off if they're not, they don't have faith. If there's no faith, they're cut off. The judgment will come. There's two outcomes to God's judgment. You receive his mercy, which he, he's given us in the terms of peace, right? the things of peace, or you receive his wrath. The wrath that all of us deserve. All, every one of us. As soon as you send the one time, cut off. It says in Ephesians 2, we're all children of wrath. By nature, we are all children of wrath. But God being rich in his mercy, sent his son Jesus to save us, to make a way to have peace with God. Don't, I, I don't want us to lose the fact that Jesus wept as he said this, but, but I'm trying to drive home the point that because he wept does not mean there's some back door or that there's just some other way out. There's only, there's two outcomes and that's it. So let's keep moving. So for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So here, so here's where we see Jesus' judgment, right? We just saw the terms of peace, Jesus weeping, we see his love, we see his mercy being extended. Here we see his, the judgment coming, the wrath. The wrath of God is being shown here to what is to come. So what does this mean? So what is Jesus saying? There's, there's two levels of this judgment. The first is the physical. So what he is describing here with, with Israel being surrounded and destroyed completely, not one stone was left, literally demolished, actually happened in 70 AD. 70 AD, Rome came in, surrounded the city, which is a military tactic at the time. And even today, if you get surrounded as an army, you are royally not in a good place, right? <laughs> like, there's so many terms I love to use because I'm in the army, but I can't because I'm up here. But yeah, see, I'm a sinner too. So, um, but anyway, so 
oh, gosh, there's so much I want to say. But surrounded, right? It's horrible. If you're surrounded, you get no supplies, you get no food, you get no water, you get no ammunition, you get nothing. Literally nothing. And so the tactics back then worked well. They would literally surround a city. Anybody tries to come in, slaughtered. Anybody tries to come out, slaughtered, gone, right? Nothing is coming in. You're literally starving to death because they don't, there's not immense fields of food growing in the middle of a city, right? That's what the outside's for. So there's nothing to eat. They will literally starve you to death, starve you into submission until you're so weak that either everybody is basically dead or the people that are still alive are so weak there's no way in heck they're going to fight you back. Then what do they do? They come in and they hem you in on every side, they tear you down, they destroy everything, and they demolish Jerusalem. What Jesus described here actually happened verbatim. Physical destruction. The next part of that, before we get into why this occurred, the next part is the eternal and spiritual side of this. So yes, this actually occurred. Yes, it was actually destroyed physically, but spiritually they are blind. They can't see. The darkness has covered, has covered them as a nation, even to this day, they cannot see. Why did this happen? It's a natural question. Seems pretty harsh, right? Why would, God, why would God pour out his wrath on the nation that he chose in the Old Testament and loves? Why, why would he do that? We get a picture here at the end. Because you did not know, so notice we, we read all this at the very end, after he talks about all this destruction, he says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So what does that mean? Visitation. So visitation, that term is used in, in two different ways in the Old Testament. So it's either used to describe when God, when, oh Lord, what was I saying there? When God comes to judge his people or a people or when a God comes and visits to save them. So there's two, there's two options. Either you get the judgment when God visits or you get saved, right? So how is this being used? It's really important to our understanding of this text to understand how this term is used. So this word in Greek is used twice in Luke, earlier in Luke. So the first one, I think it should be on the screen, is Luke 1, 67 and 69, the very beginning of Luke. So when it says this, yep, there it is. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So here we see the word is used, the word visited, visitation, is used in a way that is saving his people. So let's move to the next one to see what it says. So Luke 7, 16. So here Jesus just raised a widow's son from the dead. So the widow's son was dead. Jesus came up, brought him to life, right? He raised up, and then this is everybody's response right here. Verse 16. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. So both times this term is used in Luke, it's referring to God coming to save his people. So we can infer here that Jesus is referring to that here, that because you did not know the time of your visitation, they didn't know that he was there in the flesh. A unique time in redemptive history, God came down in the flesh, born of a virgin woman, is standing in front of them for three years telling them that he is the Messiah that they have been waiting for for hundreds of years, but they missed it. That is why this judgment is coming, because they did not know the time of your visitation. No here is used 
Similarly to how um, the word know is used in the passage where it's talking about Jesus was like, I never knew you, right? So I'm kind of going off the cuff here. I didn't write that all that down, but I never knew you, right? So they heard, they heard the gospel. They heard the terms of peace, but they rejected it. Didn't count. Did, did not re- they rejected the gospel here. So they are receiving God's wrath, right? Because of their sin. So let's keep moving. So over and over again, Jesus opened up his hand to extend mercy to them. They, he gave them away. He was telling them the way. How did Israel respond? They suppressed the truth. Romans 1.18, I'll just quote Paul here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unga- ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the wrath of God is coming out on Israel in this case because they suppressed the truth. That is why. It, God, Jesus isn't just like, well, I'm just going to do this because I feel like it. No, there's a reason. Like, God is a holy God. A holy God cannot be, we cannot be in the presence of a holy God in our state. We would literally just explode and just, just disintegrate because we cannot be in the presence of a holy God because of our sin and darkness. Well, we can't. We come to, like, he has, he has to either, the only way we're saved is when Jesus, when Jesus' blood has come onto us because of our faith, then we are protected because of him that is on us. It covers us and washes us white as snow, like the song, right? Washes us white as snow. That has some validity there. So, but if we don't have that, we cannot be in his presence. He literally has to pour out his wrath if we don't have something covering us and receiving his mercy. I have an illustration to hopefully help paint this picture. So take a minute, let's take a step back. So imagine a world where there's only peace. It's kind of hard to imagine, but try to imagine that. A world where there's only peace. The people there, that's all they've ever known. No conflict, no war, no nothing. Peace. Okay? So now, take that same world. Imagine somebody comes on the scene and is like, hey, they start talking about a war. What do you think the people, what do you think the people are going to think? They're gonna be like, bro, what are you talking about, man? Like, this is peace here. Like, it's all good. Like, they're not, they're literally not gonna have a framework to understand what war even means. Like, try and grasp, like, if there's only ever peace, but then somebody talks about a war, they're not gonna understand because they've only ever known peace. It doesn't make any sense. So, take that same framework and drop it down. Now, think of, let's go back to our world now. Think of wrath and mercy. If there's only ever wrath, we don't see mercy, right? So for those who get mercy, right, and receive mercy, then we fully understand what wrath looks like because there's something else. We can't understand wrath without Mercy. We can't understand mercy without God's wrath. We have both make the other make sense and drives it home to us internally on the heart level and on the mind that what the other one means. There's only ever one. We won't understand, like we can't, under, there's no framework in our mind to understand it. So here we see 
in this text, as we start to zoom out and look at everything over the judgment of God, over wrath and mercy, that for those of us who receive mercy, that mercy is so much sweeter knowing what we deserve in wrath, seeing the two sides. For those who have received mercy, for those who have faith in Christ, that only makes it so much sweeter for what Jesus has done for us. And it's not because of anything we did. We didn't earn that at all. Did not. You can't earn your salvation at all. Which only makes it even more sweeter because you can't stand there and be like, well, I, I did all this right stuff. Like, I made my way in. I'm good. No, you didn't because you can't earn your salvation. Like, so again, mercy, God's mercy and his grace that we get from Christ is so much sweeter having wrath. And this is very difficult to wrap your mind around because it is a difficult subject. So let's go to scripture. So open up your Bibles. It's not gonna be on the screen because I want everybody to look at this. So everybody go to Romans 9, 19. Is everybody there? <clears throat> so here in Romans 9, Paul opens up and is trying to answer the question, has the word of God failed? He, he's wrestling with this idea that Israel has, got, has received judgment and wrath, and he, he, he's, he's trying to grasp this. He's, but he's making the argument in Romans from 9 to 11 that it has not failed. He goes on before we start reading here in 19 to talk about Israel, and then all, not all Israel is Israel. And he starts breaking what, down what that means. And then he gets to the point where, and I'll encourage you to go home and read this yourself, uh, all of it. But he then gets to the point where God shows mercy to whom he shows mercy and wrath to whom he shows wrath. So let's pick it up here. 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And here's, here's the big pendulum. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Underline this. In order to make known the riches of his glory for, underline that, for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That's a heavy text. Go home and read that this week. But here we see these two sides of wrath and mercy. We see in Romans 2 that God is a righteous judge. We see in Romans 1 the wrath of God and the reason that his wrath is poured out, which is because of our sin. We read one verse of that earlier. This is heavy text. This is heavy doctrine, but it is important to our understanding of who God is. Our God is a holy God, he is a loving God, he is a merciful God, and he is also a wrathful God. Notice, I was making the point earlier, you can't understand mercy without wrath, right? You have to have both to understand them. Here in Romans, Paul is making the point that in order to show the riches of his glory, God's glory, he shows it for the vessels of mercy. 
But we, but we all deserve God's wrath. That, that's, that's the thing. That's the thing we have to focus on here at the end as I start to, start to wrap this up. All of us deserve God's wrath because of our sin. All of us. Well, all of us are children of wrath, like I mentioned earlier in Ephesians 2. All of us are children of wrath. But yet God, showing his glory, showing his love, showing his mercy, extended his mercy and his grace to us in Christ. That he sent his son to come live the life that we couldn't live, to atone for the sins that we could never atone for, to make a way for us to be at peace with God again. God freely gives mercy. He freely gives his grace in Christ. But we have to do it on his terms, on his terms of peace, right? As we saw earlier, the things of peace. We don't get to make that. Who, who are we to answer back to God? We don't get to make that. God makes that. By seeing and understanding God's wrath that we deserve, the taste of his mercy becomes sweeter, which should lead us to treasure and love our Father more. Just as we can't truly understand how sweet peace is without war, we cannot know how sweet God's mercy is without God's wrath. So, how do we, so what, what do we go, what do we do from here? How do we, how does this translate to us? I talked a whole lot about Israel, right? About God's judgment of Israel, how that all looks. So how does that, what does that mean for us? So I'm gonna address two people in this room. First is the believers. So for the believers in this room, like, if you have faith in Christ and have a relationship with him, you, like, give God all the glory because it is him who saved you, who opened up his hand and brought you in and adopted you into his kingdom. That is amazing. That his mercy that he extended to you freely on his own terms was given to you and to me. And like we, 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 we always have to just go back to this, that God loves you, God loves his creation. He has freely extended his mercy to his people. And that in knowing this and knowing these difficult truths about God's judgment and his wrath, we understand his mercy more. And in doing that, it's gonna hopefully help us love God more and treasure him more as we go out today, as we go out into the rest of our life, we can treasure and love him more because of it. Because we fully start to understand just what Jesus did for us on the cross. And we start to fully understand what we should have, what we should be getting, but because of, but God being rich in his mercy, sent his son for us. For the non-believers in the room, so glad you're here. The, the gospel has been, has, has been said. Like it, we, I, my prayer and my hope is that you will repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in Christ. God loves you, we love you. You want to talk to me in the back? Talk to somebody in the back. We'd love to talk to you. But God loves you. The terms of peace have been given. The terms of peace have been said. These are weighty texts. Go back home and read. Read these for yourself. They're all very important. So as we move into a time of communion, this is a perfect opportunity for us to reflect. To reflect on who God is. That disciple is somebody who knows, believes, and obeys Jesus, right? So knowing God more will help us well up our love for God even more than we have before. So as we go to a time of communion, as we break the bread that represents Christ's flesh and dip it into the juice that represents Christ's blood that was spilt on the cross for us,
that in doing so, he made a way for us to come to God. And it's a time for us to marvel at that, to remember that, to just pray over that, and to thank God and glorify him for it. Because it's not on anything that we did, good or bad, but it's only on God who gives mercy. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Father, the text this morning was heavy hitting, but very important. Father, I pray that you will help us to understand your love, to help us understand your mercy, to understand your judgment, your wrath. Help us understand these things, that you are a just God, that you are a loving God, that you sent your son to die on a cross for us to make a way. Father, I pray that as you open up, as we leave this morning, as we take this time of communion to remember your son, Help us just marvel. Help us to understand the mercy and the grace that you have extended to us freely in Christ. Help us taste how sweet that is and to reflect and remember that we were children of wrath. That all of us, when we were born, we were sons of the disobedient, we are children of wrath, but you being rich in your mercy made a way for us to be at peace with you forever and to glorify your name in all that we do and to worship you in all that we do. Father, help us marvel at these truths and to walk away loving you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.